0: What does motion sound like? With Hands free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com/socks.
1: From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition.
0: Swedish voters speak, and now the rest of Europe has to try to figure out what they said. And meanwhile, news of a tweet that almost started a war on the Korean Peninsula, which raises the interesting question of what is happening on the Korean Peninsula these days. This is the Wall Street Journal editorial pages for an edition podcast. I am Joseph Sternberg, filling in for Mary Kissel, who is on leave at a secure, undisclosed location at the moment. But I am joined here by my colleague and friend in Asia, also at a secure, undisclosed location, Hugo Restall. Hi, Hugo.
1: Hi, Joe. It, it seems to be spreading.
0: <laughs> well, uh, hopefully uh, your location will stay secure and undisclosed long enough for us to have a conversation uh, for the next 20 minutes or so about the latest in global mayhem and disorder, the running theme of this podcast for several years now, uh, as we try to make sense of yet another electoral domino not a domino to fall here in Europe. And so I thought that it might be good, since this is in the news uh, after yesterday's election in Sweden, uh, to take a look at what has been uh, happening in that Nordic country, long considered a beacon of uh, tolerance, uh, which has become the latest European country, not necessarily to lurch to the uh, far right, uh, despite many of the headlines that you see. But rather, I think the, the storyline here is just uh, the extent to which voters in Sweden as and so many other places have lost faith in mainstream political parties. And as a result of that, uh, we seem to have much more confused politics. I think it's a little difficult to say that it is uh, lurching to the right. It's more a matter that is just becoming a muddle. And I think that you see that if you mm-hmm. look at some of these results that we've had, um, the Social Democrats, uh, long the top vote getter uh coming in with about a 28% vote share, which is the lowest they have ever won. Uh, the Swedish moderates, which are the main center-right party, uh, also the big losers yesterday, down three or four percentage points to about 20%. Uh, the main center-right and center-left alliances in Swedish politics, both at about 20%, 40%. Uh, the Either side of that divide is going to struggle to form a governing coalition now. And meanwhile, you have this upsurge of the Swedish... Sweden Democrats, a a party with some very troubling uh, origins who claim that they have purged their uh, nationalist neo-Nazi elements and gone legit, uh, winning almost 18 percent of the vote. Playing the spoiler here, I think that you, you know, looking at this, looking at results that we've had in elections in Germany, in the Netherlands, even in France, uh, it is remarkable this collapse of uh, centrist parties and especially center-left parties uh, that we are seeing all across Europe.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's remarkable that uh, the backlash wasn't even greater. Right. I mean, there were some polls that were suggesting that the Democrats were going to win more than twenty percent of the vote. So you could say that the results um, are are an affirmation that uh, Sweden's voters are not uh, somehow lurching in in a radical direction. But it does send enough of a message that uh, they're dissatisfied with the leadership they've been getting. Um, And a lot of it does seem to be focused on the immigration issue. I mean, Sweden has uh, absorbed so many more refugees for its size uh, than than other countries even in in Europe so um, and they 've seen some very uh, troubling social consequences of that uh, immigration and so perhaps it 's remarkable that uh, Sweden has not uh, has not had more of a, of a reaction.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that, that uh, again, we can't talk about this election result without talking about the migration issue, which I think is something that's been hanging like a cloud over really every European election since 2015. Uh, listeners will remember that the summer of 2015 is when Europe saw enormous numbers of uh, migrants uh, arriving primarily from the Middle East. Uh, you had a lot of people from Afghanistan, from uh, war-torn Syria, Iraq, more recently, uh, Europe has seen a lot of migrants from northern Africa and even uh, coming from as far away as sub-Saharan Africa. Um, You know, 2015 was the summer that Angela Merkel, Germany's center-right chancellor, Uh, gave her big, we can do it speech where she welcomed the migrants to come. Um, Enormous controversy now as the European Union is trying to figure out uh, how to process all of these uh, people who are claiming asylum here in Europe, uh, how to try to integrate them into the society and also dealing with a of the law and order problems that arise from that. And what I found so interesting uh, about the Sweden result, and this is something that we've been seeing in other parts of Europe, is yes, it's about that, but it also seems to be about more than that. Because one of the things that you really notice is that uh, as we got closer to the election, uh, there was less and less daylight between the Sweden Democrats, this uh, you know more radical upstart party, less daylight between them on these migration issues, and uh, you know between them and the other parties, the, the mainstream center right moderates, the center left social democrats, and yet. But how, uh, how yeah. much
1: of that is just those parties realizing which way the wind is blowing and desperately trying to get aligned with the voters ahead of the election? Um, but, you know, the Swedish voters, uh, know that in the past they've, they've said things about fixing the immigration problem, but they've, they've failed to do that.
0: Well, see, that is uh, exactly what I I think is going on here. I think that this is a lot bigger than migration. It's really about trust, because what we have started seeing again and again is that even when uh, the mainstream parties try to adjust their positions to cater to a lot of these frustrations that voters clearly have on these issues, uh, they are not persuading voters that they can be trusted to follow through on that. And I think that that almost is as big a problem in European politics right now um, as any of these concerns that all of the right-thinking, uh, urban, uh, you know, educated voters and commentariat and uh, political class, you know, that that category of people think that the problem here is that voters are just rebelling against being nice people, that the, the voters don't like the migrants in some way. I think that the bigger problem that you see here is that the voters just don't trust the politicians anymore.
1: hmm but there is uh, an element of the old Milton Friedman uh, saying that you you can have a welfare state or immigration, but not both. I mean, the, the influx of immigration has stretched housing, health care. Um, there's you know a huge problem with with unemployment among the refugees. So Sweden, although it isn't as socialist as as Americans sometimes think it is, um, is not uh, is not a dynamic enough economy to absorb such a large uh, group of people in such a short amount of time and that... um that seems to have um, to really strained the welfare state in, in Sweden.
0: Well, and I think that that was a big uh, aspect of this election campaign that a lot of commentators missed. I think we uh, mentioned it in some of our editorials on this was the issue of the welfare state and the campaigning that was related to that. And you know, what, uh, Again, this is something that we've seen in a lot of other countries in Europe, too. I mean, these uh, insurgent uh, movements, we won't quite call them uh, populist because that can be such a loaded word. Uh, they're often Described as far-right movements, but actually that that is often only true in terms of their uh, attitude to cultural issues or immigration. On economics, they're often quite to the left, uh, much more comfortable at the the socialist end.
1: Yeah, a lot of the voters that swing to them are are blue-collar voters who have who have voted for the left-center parties in the past. I mean, very much like what we've seen in the U.S. with with Trump, right?
0: Uh, precisely. And that uh, that opens up this whole new interesting uh, interaction between the migration issues and the welfare state. Because again, uh, you know, not very far under the surface in Sweden is this question of what well, we are accepting all of these migrants at a time when we were already having trouble delivering public services like uh, public housing, public health care, and now we're straining the system with all of these new arrivals. I think that certainly in Germany, uh, a, a point that I've heard from some people I speak to there is the sense that, well, Germany went through all of these painful welfare reforms 15 years ago where we took away a lot of unemployment and other benefits uh, to try to balance the government budget, get the economy going again. And now all of a sudden you have these newcomers coming in here trying to take advantage of this benefit system when we're still struggling to provide for ourselves. Um, And that, again, is I think an aspect of this European migration issue that uh, people don't talk enough about. It isn't just about xenophobia or hostility to foreigners, although there might be elements of that. But I think it also ties into a lot of these much deeper and longer-running economic problems in Europe.
1: I think you should also mention that um, there are some significant cultural issues here. Um, I saw that Swedish National TV reported just before the election that uh, 60% of the people convicted of, of rape and attempted rape are foreign-born, um, as compared to 17 percent of the the overall population is foreign-born, and there's been a massive increase in in sexual offenses just in the last uh, three or four years. I think between 2013 and 2016, there was a 70 percent increase, um, which which does raise the question of, you know, it is going to be quite difficult to assimilate. Um, People who have a very different different attitude uh, towards relations between the sexes, shall we say, um, into into a Nordic uh, population, um, you know, you have this court uh, in March. I saw has has at least partially applied Sharia in acquitting a man of beating his wife because uh, she fails to try to resolve it within the family, which is what a good. Uh, Muslim wife supposedly should do. So, you know, Swedes have some reason to be concerned, I think, that, uh, you know, their, their culture, um, if not being under threat, uh, is at least, um, you know, not being accepted by a lot of these new... Uh, new arrivals.
0: Yeah, right. And uh, yeah, there are a couple aspects of that that I've been picking up on on some of my own reporting on this issue over the, the past couple years. Uh, I mean, first off, you do have a lot of these cultural uh, clashes that tend to happen, for lack of a, a better word. Um, but, you know, you also... And that tends to express itself in controversies over uh, whether uh, Muslim immigrant women should be uh, allowed to wear burqas or other uh, head coverings. Uh, Certainly, Denmark has been very aggressive in trying to ban that. Uh, You have uh, bans on headscarves in in various contexts in France. But I think that the other thing that a lot of this exposes is also just the basic provision of public services problem that a lot of European countries have had uh, lingering for a long long time. I mean, on the the one hand, uh, you know, some of these issues of sexual assault and other crimes are cultural issues. But on the other hand, you know, in the other sense, there is a law and order problem. And people are rightly asking, uh, you know, whether their state has the capacity to enforce basic law and order on the streets of their cities. And we are talking a lot
1: of burning of cars and uh riots
0: in the last few years as well. Uh, it, 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 precisely. And I think that if you're a voter in that kind of scenario, of course, you're going to be frustrated and looking for some way that you can vent uh, in an election. And we have been talking about Europe's latest electoral earthquake in Sweden. This is the Wall Street Journal's Foreign Edition. WSJ Special Access gives you a front-row seat to
1: some of The Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across.
0: The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access. Only for WSJ subscribers. Drive time. Gym time. Anytime. WSJ Podcasts. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg, filling in for Mary Kissel, who is on leave in a secure, undisclosed location. I am here with my colleague, uh, Hugo Restall, and we are going to go to Hugo's part of the world, Asia now, uh, to talk about North Korea. We have stunning revelations in uh, Bob Woodward's latest book about the Trump administration. If anyone can remember that, that's a story from last week at this point. Um, this news that at one point, Trump almost sent a tweet that might have been construed by the North Koreans as a declaration of war uh, before President Trump was talked out of of it. But that raises this uh, broader question of what is going on on the Korean peninsula right now. And I think that it's fair after a couple of months to ask, uh, you know, Trump had his big summit with uh, Kim Jong-un, the uh, fearless dear leader of North Korea uh, in Singapore a few months ago, a lot of uh, heat over that. Not necessarily very much light about what they accomplished. And since then, I think that a lot of people are wondering has the Trump method worked here? Are, are we actually accomplishing anything in North Korea right now?
1: Well, it's been a roller coaster ride, let's put it that way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Trump canceled a trip by Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo to Pyongyang, saying that uh, there wasn't enough progress being made on denuclearization. But uh, on Sunday, North Korea celebrated its 70th anniversary of the revolution and uh, with a massive parade, as per usual. But the wrinkle this time was that the parade did not include any uh, ballistic missiles. And that is being seen as a concession uh, to the U.S. and South Korea, uh, perhaps a gesture that um, they're ready to to talk about uh, arms control. And the parade emphasized instead uh, economic development, which the young Kim, uh, you know, he's, he's been doing a lot of trips around the country recently trying to talk up uh, increased productivity and investment. So uh, Trump has welcomed this as, as a sign that his diplomacy is working. I'm not uh, convinced because, uh, of course, what you put in a, in a parade is a, is a very uh, cheap gesture. I mean, you can always... Uh, uh, bring the missiles back for the next parade. Um, it doesn't uh, fundamentally change anything, but it it certainly um, improves the atmospherics and perhaps we'll see uh, uh, an, a Pompeo trip and, uh, you know, another round of talks. But um, essentially the North is demanding that the U.S. Uh, make concession and uh, agree to make a declaration of the end of the Korean War before we proceed with denuclearization. The and they're, they're claiming that uh, Trump made a promise to that effect at the Singapore summit. Um, so it, it's not entirely clear that Trump meant to make a major concession, but uh, perhaps he did in an offhand kind of way. And, and the North Koreans are a signal, their intent to hold him to it.
0: I've been wondering for a while here, uh, you know, as the Trump administration was getting up and going about whether there were actually maybe two tracks that were going on in terms of uh, the U.S. approach to North Korea, the Trump track and then the everyone else in the administration track. So it seemed that it, on the one hand, while you had uh, Trump himself making all of these uh, fire and fury comments and then uh, you know dialing that back and setting up this very you know, this personal summit in Singapore with Kim Jong Un, Uh, You also had what seemed like a much more concerted, well-thought-out plan to try to bring some pressure to bear on the regime in terms of the economic sanctions. And I think uh, a fair question at this point might be um, how are those two tracks interacting with each other at this point? I mean, is there any sign that Trump himself is now – Potent, you know, and potentially prematurely uh, trying to ease up on some of the pressure that the administration had actually been effectively applying before?
1: Well, we did ease up on the pressure. Um, essentially, from February to August, we did not uh, designate and the UN did not designate any uh, Chinese and Russian companies that were breaking uh, the sanctions um, and did not put them on blacklists. So. The sanctions really only work as long as you keep enforcing them. And the most important part of enforcing them is uh, to catch people out who are are breaking them. So uh, we essentially suspended uh, our enforcement of sanctions for those uh, six months or so uh, around the Singapore summit. And I guess you could say it's positive that in the last month we've started to enforce them again. Um, But that that was a, a very significant uh, relaxation that allowed uh, a lot of Chinese and, and Russian companies uh, to import North Korean coal, which uh, brings foreign exchange revenue to the North, which they can buy uh, essentials both for their population and for their weapons programs. So uh, that, that is not uh not an encouraging picture. Um, but, uh, you know, I, even the South Koreans have, have been breaking sanctions. Uh, they uh, they imported some North Korean coal, albeit inadvertently. But uh, the South Korean government did not go after the, uh, the the entities that were doing that importing either. So, um, so really, people have been breaking the sanctions with impunity.
0: Well, and that South Korean angle is something that I also wanted to pick up on because that's been the other big moving part. I know you and I have talked a lot about uh, you know when we've done this podcast together in the past. Because um, you know, again, in, in, in the sense of having multiple tracks going on um, in Korean dipom- diplomacy, um, you know under the Trump administration, you've then had like the the Trump and the Trump administration tracks going on, but also the South Korean track that has been happening because you have uh, Moon Jae-in. Uh, who is, uh, is certainly a, um, you know, much more left-leaning South Korean president who's come in and seems to be in, you know, interested in pursuing a form of uh, sunshine policy with the North. And, yeah, you know, I I'm curious about how that uh, dynamic has been playing out, uh, particularly since the Trump summit, um, you know, are, are there right. signs that that kind of, uh, you know, South Korean you know, diplomacy there, that kind of track is helping or are there signs that they're starting to get in the way?
1: Well, I think it's definitely hurting. It's it's undermining the U.S. effort to, uh, you know, to use carrot and stick. I mean, the, the South Korean approach is all carrot and no stick. Um, and Trump has been blaming China for not helping uh, with North Korea um, and not enforcing the sanctions as much as it should. But really, I think Kim Jong-un is getting more encouragement from South Korea than he is from China. Uh, Moon Jae-in has been essentially advocating for the North in, in pushing the Trump administration to give concessions, uh, such as the peace declaration, uh, before denuclearization takes place. Uh, Moon wants to uh, increase economic engagement between the two Koreas. Uh, he's even proposed that... Uh, they should together. They should form part of what he's calling an East Asian railroad community and connect up their railways and their roads, uh, so that uh, trade can flow uh, north from South Korea and then through to through to China. Um, and uh, Moon Jae-in is also cutting the size of the, the South Korean military. Uh, he's he's made a proposal um, to cut the the troops. Uh, size, and he's dismantling uh, guard towers along the uh, demilitarized zone between the south and the north. So really a very, um, would you say, peacenik kind of approach to North Korea, that if we can't we all just be friends and uh, we shower the North Koreans with love, perhaps uh, they'll see the light and and, uh, disarm, which is, uh, of course, horribly naive. Um, has not worked in the past uh, under previous South Korean presidents. The North has pocketed these uh, benefits, and then as soon as the money or trade stops flowing, it uh, goes back to its its usual uh, saber-rattling and development of, of nuclear weapons. So uh, it is very concerning that uh, our supposed ally in the South um, is undermining our, our North Korea policy, um, and essentially trying to uh, take over um, leadership of, of North Korea diplomacy so that um, so that we're unable to pursue the maximum pressure policy that the Trump administration uh, started off with. I,
0: I think that leadership point is just so important here, and we'll, we'll have to close with this thought, but uh, yeah, just this notion that a problem – That America is really having right now is the uh, inconsistent messages that come out of Washington so often on so many of these important strategic issues. And the difficulty uh, that uh, Washington creates both for allies and even for some leaders of allied countries where the individual leader might be more skeptical of the the U.S. or U.S. power, the confusing messages that Washington sends out about what the Trump administration wants its allies to uh, do and also... uh, you know, just the sense of not knowing exactly what the plan is. I mean, this, and this is certainly something that I would hope that some of President Trump's supporters are thinking about because a big argument for him has always been that he would be very disruptive and unsettling to a status quo that, uh, you know, in so many ways hadn't been working before. But that does seem to be coming at the, the cost of greater uncertainty, uh, you know, about America's objectives and how, you know, Washington is hoping to achieve those. But I think that that is enough global disorder for one day. So we will uh, leave things there. Thanks to my colleague Hugo for joining today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Please subscribe to us wherever you uh, get your uh, audio content. And we will look forward to talking with you again later this week.